Yes, so today we are starting with a new sermon series. It's not going to be a very long sermon series, but it is a very overdue sermon series. Now, if we were to take a step back and take inventory of this past year, there'd be so many different takeaways that we could carry into the new year. But I think one of the most important takeaways I believe we can glean from this year is how much less in control we are of our lives than we thought. Does that make any sense? Like we think we know where we're going to travel, how we're going to vacation, you know, what our job is going to look like, what our education is going to look like, what our social life is going to look like. And this year, if anything, it's proven that we're not as in control of our lives as we previously thought. There's so many things that are outside of our control. It really reminded me of James chapter 4 when it says, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that does not, uh, that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will. We will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, and all such boasting is evil. So this this verse has been proven this year. I had great plans for this year. I was like, I'm going to vacation here. This is like the people that I'm going to meet in person. This is what our church community will look like. These are the classes that we're going to take. And we had this idea at the very beginning of the year. Little did we know that so many things would shift under our feet. And yet, the, the most important thing that we ought to know with reassurance this year is that God has been fully in control this entire time. Now, while this has been happening, one of the topics that has actually come to the forefront for the global church is the subject of the end times. This is actually a a topic of conversation, not just for certain kind of churches as previously done. Now it's actually part of the more global church conversation. And even for people outside the church, they're beginning to wonder, what is this end time stuff? Because honestly, like we can all be honest here, up until this year, we kind of thought that all this kind of global, you know, massive level, you know, shakings were kind of just theoretical, you know, like someday far in the future, it's possible that entire nations could shut down someday far in the future. It's possible that there could be economic collapse someday far in the future. Like maybe, you know, my children's children sometime out there, it's possible that the status quo of an entire nation or entire globe could change within the span of a year. It was so theoretical. It was so hypothetical, but this year for us has been like, Oh, it's actually possible. Actually, it's very possible. It's very possible that within the span of a year, everything that we took for granted is no longer guaranteed. And for people who believe the word and who've read this before, all of a sudden you see like, oh, like the Bible is not just hypothesizing things and abstract ideas, but it actually has real life, everyday repercussions. It affects your job. It affects your family. It affects your health, your education, your plans, your finances. It affects every aspect of your life. And this is not detached from the narrative of scripture. It's actually part of the scripture. 
And so we've seen this year, like the globe shaking like never before, a profound nationwide effect of something as microscopic and invisible as a virus, the devastating repercussions on world politics, healthcare, education, family, economy, the simultaneous natural disasters that have been hitting the globe with a frequency and severity like never seen before earth this time last year we were worried about fires in australia do you guys remember that was less like that was less than a year ago but since then we've seen so many hurricanes so many earthquakes we've seen so many fires we've seen so many so much flooding all these things happening at a global scale and the feeling of the ground shifting beneath our feet so that everything that we thought we could predict, we thought like, yeah, this year is going to play out a very particular way. It's no longer guaranteed. So when it comes to the topic of the end times, there's actually a lot of preconceived notions about what it is and what it isn't. Which is why it's all the more important to learn about it from a biblical perspective. And I say this because I lived most of my Christian walk treating this as a side subject. Treating this like as an elective, a bonus. Like, this is the main gospel. This is the main narrative of scripture. And for some Christians, they tend to specialize on this idea, this notion called end times. And in my very judgmental mind, those Christians looked a particular way, right? (laughs) I was, you know, I judge a lot, right? And so in my mind, I was like, well, it's not like, you know, the, the, the respectable Christians or like, you know, the, the kind of pastors that I look up to or the kind of authors that I look up to. It's a kind of like a fringe group out there somewhere that likes to talk about this end time stuff. And so in my mind, for, for most of my spiritual walk, I actually treated this as like, well, the entire Bible and the gospel narrative and what pertains to my life, how I live my life, how I plan my life. It has very little to do with this fringe subject called the end times. Now, if I were to ask a question, everybody could, um, you know, answer this one out of the 66 books of the Bible. What is the book that talks like the, the typical book that is quoted when you talk about end times? Revelation, right? The book of Revelation. So for most of my life, I actually never read that end part. I was like, oh, okay, this one, let's just, you know, okay, beasts and, uh, you know, like earthquakes and seals and trumpets. And I don't know what to make of this horns. And like, I don't know what to make of all this. And so I, I treated this book like we'll never be able to understand it. Like I, I could try, but it's always going to be out there in the realm of mystery. And for me particularly, it was shrouded in this air of spookiness. Like, it's not like clean, bright Christianity. It's like the spooky side of Christianity. Like the part that I don't really fully understand. And it's kind of, you know, like out there. So the irony of it is that the title of the book, right? The book of Revelation. The irony of it is that it actually means the book of unveiling. It means the book of making something mysterious, available, accessible, it's, it's a book of explaining and expounding and illustrating and uncovering. 
So it's not the book of hiding, the book of mystery that will never be solved. It's actually a book that God has written through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for us to take these mysteries and actually uncover them, unveil them, and see them for what they are. So here's a question that I want to ask us today. What is this book, the book of Revelation, what is this book unveiling per se? So what's the theme of this book? What is it essentially about? Now, I want you to, to do this. If you have your physical Bible, I actually need you to open it today. And if you have your, you know, like your smartphone, just do it on your smartphone. Because I want to make sure that you guys read this verse that you probably read before but never really paid attention to. And I want you to know without a shadow of a doubt that I'm not making this up. That it's been there all along. All right? So you open up, scroll to the very, very end, book of Revelation. Open up to chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. We're all there? The book of Revelation is easy to find because it's the very last one. Okay. The first five words in the book of Revelation, the opening statement, the title page, if you will, it reads, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the revelation of the antichrist, not the revelation of the beasts and the signs and the trumpets and all of that. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ primarily. Hopefully that gives us a little bit more like reassurance. Oh, this is not a foreign topic. This is actually somebody that we know and we love. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of of what happens, you know, when, when global economies collapse, it's not the revelation of, you know, the antichrist empire. It's not the revelation of the seven seals, seven bowls, seven trumpets. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ primarily. So today's message is titled intro to the end times, the glory of Christ and the church revealed the glory of Christ and the church revealed. So Um, I'm actually going to ask us to read from the slides because we're going to jump around just a little bit. We're going to move from Revelation 1 to Revelation 4. And we're going to read all together at the same time. We haven't done this in a long time, which is why I have slides for us, so that we can all read from the same version. We're going to read all together. Here we go. One, two, three. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Now we're jumping to Revelation 5. And it reads altogether one, two, three. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with a writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel 
proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. So this is a passage, you know, that talks about the glories of God and his church. When we often think about this idea of the end times, our mind first goes to like how difficult it's going to be, like all the crazy things that are going to be completely out of our control. But God's idea of what the end times is about is very different. It is supposed to showcase the raw, unfiltered, unveiled glory of God sitting on his throne in the midst of the greatest shakings that all of human history has encountered. In the midst of that, we see at the dead center, a God who is unmoved and still sitting on a throne. And we see a people that surround him in the midst of the shakings, in the midst of the persecution and the trials. And they are not scrambling around thinking about what's going to happen to them. They're not, their eyes are not fixed on the shakings. They're fixed on the one who's seated on the throne and their worship never stops. Now, a few years ago, I need to be very transparent about this. A few years ago, our church went through a long season of studying the end times. If we were to do it all over again, there's obviously many things that we would have done differently. There were a couple things that came out of that season that were actually good, I would say. For the first time, as a community, we actually looked at the Bible and the passages on the end times, and it wasn't fiction anymore. It wasn't someone else's story anymore. 
we realize just how illiterate we are regarding one of the things that the Bible commands us to examine and be alert about the most. It's like the Bible stopped being a history book of things that have happened before to someone else or a philosophy book that talks about how you ought to live in a moral manner and it became alive. We started seeing ourselves in the narrative of scripture for the first time. But there were also many things, as I said, that we did wrong in our study of the end times. And I need to be very transparent about this. Our focus as a church and as a ministry very quickly became about an obsession over the sequence of events, converting savings into gold, buying cans of tuna, fearing what is to come, predicting dates. It became about, wait, wait, well, what's the beast? And what's the, the, the end times empire? And what's the sequence? And how can I hedge my assets and have enough non-perishables to make, make it through and be prepared for an economic collapse? It very quickly veered in that direction. For many people who had never studied the end times before, it left a very bad taste in their mouth. Now, here's the greatest blunder and the missed opportunity. It never became about a longing for the man, Jesus Christ. It never became about the return of a person. It never became about Jesus, a revelation of Jesus. It was this disembodied compilation of ideas and sequences and principles without the foundational understanding that it's not primarily about the dangers and trials and persecutions. It is first and foremost about the glorious unveiling of the lion and the lamb, the glorious unveiling of the servant and king, the desire of nations, the defender and provider, the redeemer, restorer, the head of the church. It's the embodiment of all that is good and excellent and praiseworthy. That's what the end times it's about. And it was such a loss and such a shame that when we could have come away from that season with a greater passion for the return of Christ, instead we walked away, maybe knowing more dates, maybe knowing more information, maybe even knowing, okay, if this happens for real, we know exactly what to buy and exactly what to do. Maybe, yes, those are good things that we might have gleaned from that season, but it's such a loss and such a shame that the primary focus of that time, it wasn't about this longing for the return of Christ. The greatest tragedy, it wasn't that it was just a fear-based approach to the end times, but that we miss the glory of it. We miss the most important part. The end times is the revelation of Christ, from Christ, for the glory of Christ. The book of Revelation, it opens up, you know, with Apostle John, John the Beloved, being taken up in the spirit and hearing unspeakable things and being given the game plan and insider look of what's going to happen in the end times, what's going to unfold for all of humanity. But I want to emphasize this. If you were to look at your Bible and just gloss over, you know, Revelation chapter one, it's an introduction. Jesus addresses the churches. Revelation two and three, it addresses the seven churches. And we've talked about this passage before. Seven actual, concrete, real, local communities, seven letters to seven churches, 
as a good shepherd and as the head of his body, Jesus is not impartial or without opinion when it comes to the local church. He has a very clear idea of what's being done right and what needs correction. There are very specific ways that Jesus says, you are doing this well, yet this is an area of weakness. And you need to turn to the Lord in this very particular way. It's the voice of the shepherd reaching out to his local church saying, I love you too much to remain impassive and distant from your reality. I will refine you and I will make you mine once again. Hear what the spirit is saying to the churches. Now, the urgency behind this and the the specific location of it in this book of Revelation, it's not just a suggestion box kind of moment for Jesus. There are actually things at stake, very real things. There are challenges ahead. The church will be tested. The church will be tried. And it's in the church's best interest to heed to his voice, to be anchored And rooted in Jesus, be rooted in first love, be rooted in true doctrine and perseverance because of what's about to unfold. Because of revelation for and onward. Because of that, the letters to these seven churches are urgent. It's not just like, hey, I'm taking a look at your church. I'm taking inventory. It'd be great if you tweak this. It'd be be great. He's saying the time is urgent. They're very important things at stake. If you do not heed to the voice of the spirit at this time, you will not make it through the following chapters of Revelation. And right before Jesus gives John the game plan, right, like right before, and it almost sounds like a tangent. It almost sounds like very unrelated. You're like, you're talking to the seven churches and then all of a sudden, you know, John is swept up and he's in the throne room of heaven. You're like, what does it have to do with anything? What does it have to do with, you know, everything that's about to unfold? It seems like a tangent. It seems like it has nothing to do. It's like spliced into like a narrative that seems to go in a particular direction. But it's actually very, very intentional. Revelation 4 and 5 talks about the throne room of heaven. And we just read from that. It is the unveiled, unfiltered, raw glory of God, the Father and God, the Son. It is as if God were saying, remember when you get overwhelmed by shakings about the things that are about to unfold, all the things that are outside of your control, when you feel disoriented and confused and abandoned and dejected and you're ready to give up. Remember, there's one seated on the throne. When you wonder what in the world is happening When you wonder what is going to be of my life, when everything's out of control, when everything's in chaos, remember, there is one who is seated on the throne, fully in control, his glory unclouded by the things that seem to be out of your control in your life and in the world. There is one like Jasper and Carnelian, surrounded in glory, exalted in worship, and day and night his praises never stop, not even when things are hard. Day and night his praises never stop. He is still holy, holy, holy. He's still worthy, worthy, worthy. And it is precisely against the backdrop 
of the most difficult time in all of human history, more than any world war, any, more than any Holocaust, more than any of the genocides and any of the massive natural disasters or economic collapses or political upheaval, more than any of those things, it's against that very backdrop that Jesus Christ will show himself to be a worthy God, a faithful friend, an all-sufficient Savior, and a conquering King. The end times is God's chosen context that will showcase the glory of King Jesus like we've never seen before. Even greater than the transfiguration. When you think about what John and what James and, and uh, Peter saw up there in the Mount of Transfiguration, sometimes we think, man, if I had seen that, it wouldn't be so hard for me to believe. If I had seen Jesus, you know, unveiled in his glory and suddenly shining like the sun, I wouldn't have any doubt that Jesus is God. But his revelation, the Jesus that we see in the book of Revelation in the end times, any end times passage that you see in the Bible, it is even greater than that of the transfiguration. It's even greater than what uh, Saul saw in the road to Damascus, where the vision of Jesus, just seeing this man, blinded Saul and turned him from a, pat, uh, from a, a, a hate-filled Pharisee into a passionate Jesus follower, a church planter, an apostle. We will see Jesus in the fullness of his glory, defeating Satan in the fullness of his wrath. One more time, we're going to see Jesus in the fullness of his glory, so much that we won't be able to take it just with these mortal bodies. It'll take an eternal redeemed body to be able to take in the glory of Jesus. We'll be able to see Jesus in the fullness of his glory, defeating Satan in the fullness of his wrath. The end times is the glory of Christ revealed. It's supposed to give us a God that we know will not fail us even in the hardest of times. Now, not only that, but the end times is also the glory of the church revealed. Sometimes we think of the church in a very lowly way, in a very worldly way. We see it as, oh yeah, it's like a bunch of people that get together on a given day and maybe we sing songs together, like, you know, and maybe we listen to some message and maybe we pray together here and there. And it seems like it's just a humble gathering. But God sees a church in a very, very different light. He sees it as his vehicle to bring the kingdom of God here on earth. Have you ever had this experience? Like you've known somebody for many years and then you watch them go through something really difficult. Like you've seen them maybe, you know, you've known them for years and years. And then all of a sudden you see them wrestle with like life-threatening sickness or like their family falls apart or like financial difficulty to an extent that you've never seen before. When you see someone that you thought you knew go through crisis in their life and then all of a sudden you see a side of them that you actually never knew was there. Like you think you know them until you see them go through trials and shakings. And that's when you actually see what they're actually made of. What was actually on the inside all this all along. It's very similar to the church. In the end times, yes, the church will endure pressures like never before. Have you read the, you know, the prophecies that 
of what's to come. It's not roses and rainbows. It's not like, oh yeah, sure. Like hopefully we'll make it through. It's actually the, the greatest pressures than that mankind has ever experienced. The church will be persecuted and pressed and challenged and shaken like never before. And it is in that context that we'll see a power, a faith, a resilience, a steadfastness and a glory like we've never seen before in the church. Like never before. It's going to showcase not just how powerful and glorious this man Jesus Christ is, but how glorious and powerful his bride is as well. Let me give you the story. Earlier this year, it feels like so long ago, right? But early this year, in the month of January... A few of us here had the incredible honor of leading worship for a group of missionaries and ministers, many of them actually from very restricted, persecuted nations. And it was a group of maybe like 100, 150 missionaries that, you know, flew in from all these different countries where they cannot sometimes, you know, pray in the open. They cannot gather in masses. You know, they can't even receive teachings or seminars. And they flew into Korea. They were hosted by a ministry called uh, Footstool. And this group of people, they came together just to love on God, to reconnect with one another, to be refreshed before being sent out again into the mission field. So we were there to lead worship. I don't know how that happened, but we were there to lead worship. This group of 100, 150 men and women and children of God that out of love for Christ moved their families to nations that desperately needed the gospel. And we were... And they were laboring to see a harvest of souls. We're not talking about this rosy idea of missions, you know, like somewhere out there, you know, and everything's always great and everybody always accepts Christ and there's minor glitches, but overall it's like a really encouraging experience. No, this is the nitty gritty. We had families who were sharing, you know, I don't know what to do about this situation. I don't know how to raise my children in this nation. I don't know how to reach out to this family. I don't know what to do about this church member that once they accepted Christ, they were kicked out of their family and they lost their job. You know, very nitty gritty, uh, very on the ground, very sober, you know, realities of what it looks like to live out the gospel in a persecuted nation. Because I don't want to romanticize this. It's, it wasn't smooth sailing and it wasn't easy. And we had a time of sharing and one by one, they shared how the governments were cracking down on their ministries, how they feared for their families, especially those with young children and with newborns. They talked about how people that receive Christ in their communities, they would be persecuted by their own families and lose jobs. They talked about the cost of following Christ every single day. And one group even shared about how one of the people who had received Christ through their ministry actually was killed a few weeks before that because of the name of Jesus and how this ministry staff, this, this ministry team, these missionaries and their family, they were reeling from the pain and the loss. You can't sugarcoat this kind of stuff. It's like very real. This is what it looks like when you lay down your life for the gospel and you follow Jesus wherever he calls you. And then after this time of honest sharing and acknowledging the difficulty, but we're not glossing over it. We're not saying, oh, Jesus covers it all. God is great. God is still good. We're not doing that. We're actually acknowledging the pain and the loss. We were looking at each other in the eye and saying, that must have been really difficult. I don't know how you made it through. 
we were we were very honest in sharing and acknowledging that difficulty and that cost. And then after that, we had to go up on stage and lead a time of worship. <laughs> like, what do you say to that? They just shared about somebody. They had a, a faithful, you know, minister that just got killed because of the ministry. I particularly felt very unworthy, you know, to lead a group like that. Like, what am I going to say? What do I have to offer a group like that? Like, I just want to just like sit in the corner and just receive, like, I don't, what am I doing here? But of course I, I went up and I led worship. And the first song that we sang was give me Jesus. And there was something about how these people sang the song. You know how the song starts in the morning when I rise in the morning when I rise in the morning when I rise give me Jesus give me Jesus give me Jesus you can have all this world but give me Jesus. And we just sang that song. And it's like Jesus had never looked more beautiful than he did then. And the church had never looked as glorious as it did then. The last verse was, and when I come to die, when I come to die, whether it was that person or whether their number was up next, when I come to die, even then my cry will not be why me God, My cry will not be, but what about my children? These are all very real problems, very real worries. Their cry will be, still give me Jesus. I've laid down my life. I've turned my back on the world, and I just want Jesus. There was this sense of hope and power and defiance and glory as these broken men and women lifted up the name of Jesus. And once again told him that he was worthy of all the sacrifice. He was worthy of all the inconvenience, of all the danger, of all the persecution, of their family going through very difficult years. Jesus was worthy of that. And at the end of the day, all they want, all they need, all the desire, all they long for is still Jesus. See, in Revelation 4 and 5, we see the glory of God unveiled. One who's worthy of receiving all the glory, power, honor, praise. And we also see the beauty and the power of the church that has overcome. The church that hasn't sidestepped the trials, but instead triumphed through them. And they cast their crowns at Jesus' feet. There's 24 elders surrounding the throne. 12 for the tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. 12 for the 12 apostles in the New Testament. Symbolizing and enduring, persevering, faith-filled, victorious people of God, enthroned, crowned, and robed, surrounding the throne of God, casting down the crowns at his feet, shouting, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. So I'd summarize it this way, if we were to talk about, why is it important to talk about the end times? Isn't it just, we'll, we'll, we'll get there when we get there? Isn't it just this fringe subject that we may or may not get to? There's enough things for us to worry about, and my life is very busy. Isn't this a side thing that we don't really need to talk about? The end times, it showcases Jesus Christ as the only one worthy to unlock 
the ultimate plan to bring final restoration to all creation and a final defeat to death because he overcame the evil one. He purchased men through his blood and he made them priests and heirs. And at the same time, the bride of Christ, God's people are described in the same passage as worshipers that sing a new song. Have you ever tried to worship through the hardest times that you've gone through in your life? When things are not going your way, when prayers go unanswered, when nothing seems to change, when hope seems to be lost, when the damage goes beyond repair in those times. Have you ever tried to worship? Worship coming from that place, it sounds very different to God in many ways. You sing him a new song out of their brokenness, out of their need, and understanding that after all of this, God still reigns. God is still worthy. God's people are priests that serve God, people that are drawn close. They no longer have to stand back. They no longer have to go before a veil. They are given access as priests that serve God. They are saints that overcome the evil one. They're not trying to run away from the evil one. They're running straight into battle, knowing that God is their defender, knowing that victory is for sure, knowing that God will accomplish everything that he's already started. Saints that overcome the evil one and rulers that are called to govern over the earth. Rulers, co-heirs that are called to govern over the earth. This is why it's important for us to understand the end times. We will never fully understand what the church is supposed to be. Not what we're trying to scramble together to make it be, but what God sees in the church, how God sees the church and just how glorious, just how worthy our King Jesus Christ is. This is why we study the end times. Now, next week I'll be preaching, you know, on the end times, not as it pertains to the glory of Christ and the glory of the church revealed, but how the gospel the gospel story, the very basic understanding of our faith, that is incomplete without an understanding of the end times. We cannot fully understand the power, the impact, the end goal, the hope in the gospel, unless we talk about the end times. But for this week, what I want to simply ask is this. Do you want to pursue the full revelation of this fully man, fully God person called Jesus Christ? Do you want to long for him and make him the ultimate desire of your heart? Do you want to see your life being transformed by the power of not just obedience, but longing a desire for him? Then open up your heart to pursue an understanding of the end times. I'm not saying... It's going to happen overnight. I'm not saying it's easy or it's comfortable. All I'm saying is just open up your heart. Open up your heart to pursue an understanding of the end times. Yes, exercise discernment. Yes, examine the word. Examine teachings on it. Don't even take my word just wholesale. Examine what I'm preaching. Examine what I'm teaching. So yes, 
Examine the word, examine teaching, teachings on it. Yes, take the time that you need and be patient with yourself. It might take weeks, it might take years. It took me years to even open up my heart to it. But open up your heart. It isn't this grudging like, ah, I guess I have to tackle this. I guess I should know about this if I'm a Christian. I guess this is an unavoidable part of the Bible. I guess this is part of being a good Christian. It's not that kind of thing. It's a gift from God. It's a provision for the church. It's in his kindness and his mercy and desire to reveal himself to us that he's given us the subject to meditate on. And it's a provision for the church to be made ready for what is up ahead. And I'm going to ask the praise team to come up. And I just want to end with this. In my own personal journey, right, in opening up my heart to the whole counsel of the word, not cherry picking what is comfortable. If I were to just read the Bible for what is comfortable for me, I would probably stay in the Psalms maybe, and not even all of them, just the positive ones. Maybe that's where I'd camp the whole time. But in my own personal journey of opening up my heart to the whole counsel of scripture, without just choosing the parts that I'm comfortable with, in my own journey, God has done a deep and profound transformative work in my heart. My own journey is a testament to God's ability to bless us and intensify our love for him as he reveals himself through the study of the end times. So this past week, as I was preparing for this message, you know, I was, you know, working hard, like how, how to even make this palatable, how to like make sure that I don't offend people. I, I was, you know, overthinking things. And as I'm like, you know, stressed out trying to figure out how to do this, Pastor JP is like, why are you stressed? Like, this is your bread and butter. Like, this is what you breathe. Like, since when? Like, have you ever had to stop and think about how to teach this? Like, you talk about this even when, you know, you're not trying to teach. And it's so interesting that he made that observation because I would never have thought that. I would never have thought that. I would never even have planned for it. Like all I knew in my spiritual walk, all I knew is that I love Jesus passionately. And as I pursued him, the person, Jesus Christ, as I asked and searched and yearned to get acquainted with this man, I found myself colliding head on with this topic of the end times. It was inevitable. It was a matter of time before I landed there. And I also love the church passionately. I pray for the church. I long to see the church rising up and becoming everything that she's meant to be. And so there too, I found myself almost accidentally crashing head on with this topic of the end times. It was also inevitable as I dream for the church, as I pray for the church, as I contend for the church, as I cry out for this church to be built up and strengthened and encouraged, I cannot help but get into this topic of the end times. There is no place in the Bible and no moment in human history that paints as vividly the glory of God and the future of his church.